and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Wayne and Monica. Hey guys, how's it going? Hey Mav. Disoriented, Mav, to be honest. Disoriented? <laughs> You've only... It's, it's been a long time since I've been on. I'm happy to be back. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to talk about the fact that you, like, you know, sped home in order to be here. <laughs> I, I did sit in an hour of L.A. traffic. That's how much I love our podcast for the listeners. Wow. <laughs> That's, it's nice to have you back. Welcome back. We have a big show today, so I don't want to do too much chit chatty stuff because we got like two guests and a complicated topic. But I guess this is the happy Halloween, guys. It's a yeah. Halloween show because yes. we didn't do one this year. And if you're listening, so if you're listening real time, we are, you know, two weeks after Halloween. So three weeks after we normally do the Halloween show. Because we were all but, too busy. Yeah, well, we so had we other stuff going on. the Halloween show because Hannah, I mean, technically, Mav and Wayne, you were the ones who were not there. But Hannah and I made everybody sit down and talk about spooky, cozy murder fall stories, by which I'm referring to our Hercule Poirot, which yeah. I think was actually my last episode before I was swallowed up by Los Angeles traffic. The thing is, Monica, though, your favorite show where you guys talked about that was all the way back in September. So it was like too early to be Halloween. That was the September 25th show. So. Not according to Starbucks, Mav, or like oh. Target Candy Isle. It's definitely Halloween. I guess. So in the same way that it's now Christmas. Is. Yeah, yes, like, this will be a exactly. Christmas episode. So. <laughs> This is how the Grinch stole Christmas, right? Maybe. Yeah. So much fun. Nightmare Before Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That sounds good. Yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas. So, okay. So, if you're listening in the future or any other time, because, you know, it's an evergreen podcast, you can listen to this whenever you want. It doesn't matter. The entire thing we just like did is it's irrelevant. You know, this is a timely show, but it's been it's been a minute since we did a show where we talked about monsters and those are that's like oddly a recurring theme on our show that we do these monster shows <laughs> that usually at Halloween time, but not always. Right. That's like a thing. So. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple of guests. So, well, actually, Wayne, you want to invite the regular guest back? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, Mike Kemmers is back with us. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Great to be back. Mike, good. Yeah, Mike was early guest on the show and typically does a monster episode with us around this time of year. And once again, just kind of motivated to bring him back for some reason. And we don't have a specific topic this time around, but he has a lot going on that he's going to talk to us about. But let's introduce our other guest first. Yeah. So also returning to the show, we have Sam Lane. Still, uh, hey Sam. Hey Sam. Hey, good to be back, guys. Yeah. yeah. So, so Sam, um, I, we, we were talking about this off off mic a little bit. Sam, I know f- through the comic circuit, but what makes you interesting, I think, at least to our audience, is that you've got this book on monster studies, and you've been on the show before, but we've never really had you on for a monster studies show, even though we've done like six of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's a weird. Sorry sorry about that. No, I mean, this is, I think, what I really enjoy about my scholarly life. And, but I think what also makes me very difficult to parse. Um, And I'm saying this like in terms of like the job market, I am like a patchwork quilt of a person. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's not necessarily the case that all the circles that I run in are aware of all the other circles that I'm running in, right? So yeah, I do monster studies. and, And actually, I think I probably started dipping toes into monster studies before really I even got into comic studies. I mean, in a kind of very minor way, but yeah, like that's a, it's another like large area of my interest and it has converged with comic studies for quite some time. But I mean, I love all kinds of monsters. I I will cuddle them all. (laughs) So anyway, what, what was weird about this was we were talking, it's like, oh, we haven't done a monster show in a while, so we should do one for, for Halloween. And then I, I remember 
Jimmer said he could, but then we didn't schedule it. Then Sam was busy when we were going to schedule it. So she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't I can't do it. And then we just ended up not doing the show because everyone like we couldn't make it co- coordinated. So then it was just like, OK, well, I guess it'll be, you know, two weeks after Halloween be available. And you guys both were oddly enough. And I mean, uh, at, like in like the middle of the day for you guys. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when you guys are like seven o'clock Eastern, I'm like, really? OK, well, you should have caught us two weeks ago when we were at the Festival of Monsters in Santa Cruz, California together. Nice segue. Was, yeah, right. That, and that was kind of. <laughs> And that was the back door, you know, what you both had in common. What is the Festival of Monsters? Well, I'm glad you asked, Mav. So <laughs> since the last time I came on, I believe I told you guys that I had founded a unit at the University of California, Santa Cruz, a research center called the Center for Monster mm-hmm. Studies. Did mm-hmm. I tell you guys about that? Yep. Okay, cool. So the Center for Monster Studies basically does two things. One is it puts out a podcast called The Show Where They Talk About Monsters, which you can Mm -hmm. get at any place where fine podcasts are distributed. And the other thing that we do is a a conference, a scholarly and slash popular conference where we bring scholars from all over America and the world to Santa Cruz to share their research on monsters. And also we do a a public facing event. We did a whole day of public facing events, which was really cool. And we had a great time. And we also did it in conjunction with a museum exhibition at the Museum of Art and History in Santa Cruz. It was a beautiful little museum in Santa Cruz. This this exhibition was on comic book monsters that were drawn by women starting in the 1930s and going all the way to today. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot going on here in Santa Cruz to, in terms of monsters in October. And if people have a time machine, they could go back and see it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the exhibition is available until January 20th. So if you're in Santa Cruz, you know, okay. hop on by the, the nice. Ma, the Museum of Art and History, <laughs> and plunk down 10 bucks and you can see the show. Awesome. I was going to say, Michael, you are working on putting the recordings online as well, right? Is that going to be available to right. the wider public? Absolutely. That'll be available to anybody and you can access that. I think it'll be a YouTube channel, but you'll be able to access it from our website, which is monsterstudies.ucsc.edu. That email address again is monsterstudies.ucsc.edu. I'll probably link it in the show notes if you're, you know, to slide us a couple of bucks, you know, make it worth our while, you know? <laughs> 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 yeah so so talk about just talk about talk about the exhibit i mean what went into it what what motivated it what kind of things did you do what's included in it Gosh, i mean yeah well so the exhibit is called werewolf hunters jungle queens and space commandos the lost world of women comic artists and this is an exhibition on pioneering women who were comic book artists and basically how they drew women and monsters into the history of comics and it's really a i mean as you know as who am i telling wayne was the one who taught me this but the history of comics in america is really the history of america and beginning in the 1940s uh comic books were tools of u.s propaganda you know in war propaganda and there were a lot of monsters that came in as highly racialized or hypersexualized versions of America's enemies. And, uh, and then that, that content starts to shift over time throughout the, cent- throughout the century. And it's just absolutely fascinating. I mean, we brought in artists like Lily Renee, Fran Hopper, Marcia Snyder, Jill Elgin, really cool uh, uh, artists from all the periods of American history. And we got some beautiful original work by them, thanks to the collection of a a collector, (laughs) the collection of a collector (laughs) named James, a New York based comic book collector named James Gunderson, who is really has a, a tremendous collection of comic book art, particularly done by women. And we took just a fraction of his collection to put into the exhibit. But I think we had a, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just say the picture of that's in the program book. I got a copy of the program book thanks to Mike's stepmother. And the, oh, yeah, the, the, the what, what, what's in, yeah, thanks, Barb. 
what the stuff that's included in that is just gorgeous. Yeah, you know, having someone who, yeah, as someone who has had an appreciation for comics art for a long time, just I never get tired of seeing the originals. That it just completely recontextualizes the entire thing rather than just seeing it in the comic book form. And I know your oh, yeah. experiences here with the Museum of doing that, you know, putting it on the wall in a frame takes that even farther. You know, I mean, comics yeah. are meant as a narrative, and you read it as a story. You pull these pieces out, and somehow you're able to look at the page as a page of art as opposed to one page of narrative out of many. And that, that recontextualization just always fascinates me. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think it was Gunderson who said this in one of his essays, that you see the things where you, you see the erased pencil lines, you see the whiteout, you see this stuff. So you can exactly. see the process of the artist, you know, them, the decision-making process as they're drawing this stuff of what they include and what they don't. Exactly. And the way that they anticipate the colorization process the relation, the relationship between the pencil marks and the ink marks, it's all absolutely fascinating. And we were so privileged to be able to work with these materials in such a cool way. And, and perhaps this is a bit of a leading the witness question, but since we're talking about <laughs> ideas of what is usually the invisible made visible, what is it do we feel like that adds to the conversation by having this be about female artists in particular? Yeah, well, there's a lot that, that, that needs to be said about that. But I would say, I mean, one of the most interesting things for me was that I was expecting, I think, when I started doing this research, that we were going to find all kinds of... Um, all kinds of ways that women were going to be subverting the traditional norms of comic book monstrosity, specifically monstrosity. Right. And they didn't, they actually created the same kinds of monsters that, that male artists created, but the women as characters who appear in these stories, like in the Lily Renee, Lily Renee stories, her women characters tend to be very disrespectful of the gutters in the comic book. You know, the spaces in between the panels in the comic books as women are constantly pushing out of those panels and getting themselves into other panels. It's really fascinating. So yeah, it's just interesting to see how these, these processes are subverted, but in a very subtle way, because these were still mainstream comics for a mainstream audience. And so they weren't doing too much subversion. They were towing the party line pretty much, but, but there's just these little things that when you start to look at them for a long time, you start to realize, oh my God, this is really cool. And you know, so much, particularly in you know, comics in the 1940s, you know, there was no rule book going into this. I mean, there were comic strips and certainly you know, precedents to what, what comics became. But you know, a lot of these artists were coming into it without any rule book of how to tell a story on the page. You know, storytelling was, comic storytelling was being invented monthly with the publication of every book. So those things right. like characters transgressing the, the panels, you know, that's something for a long time, everybody just, you know, just, it was drawn inside the panel. They didn't think you could do it any other way. And then people started doing that sometimes just for storytelling things, you know, breaking the panel. There's information contained in that action. It can be purposeful. There are, there are artists who do it and really have no idea why they're doing it other than the, hey, this looks cool. But I think you're right. I, I think you know, when you start seeing a lot of that being done by the same artist at a time when a lot of other people weren't doing that sort of thing, that probably says something about their approach to storytelling and comics making. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when you start to get into the 1970s, after the censorship ban is turned over, I kind of skipped over the censorship part, but when after the censorship process loses its fangs, as it were, and people start experimenting with comic books as an artistic medium, again, without the pressure of censorship in the seventies, you see this group, for instance, called the underground women libbers again, carving out experimental spaces where women comic artists can flourish. Also, I think there's a world of mainstream comics in which girls as well as boys were the target readership. And, and in those contexts, women produce really stunning stunning works as artists, particularly in the kinds of monsters that they draw, which is what we're interested in, right? Yes, that's what we're interested in. Yes. <laughs> I was like, so I'll lead the witness. Nothing, Again, nothing, so what kind of monsters are they drawing? <laughs> oh, what kind of monsters are they drawing? Well, it's really all kinds. Do you know that, like, let me bring in Marie Severin, who is one mm -hmm. of the most important figures in the history of comics in America. Marie Severin, it's so funny because we divided up when we were doing our preliminary research, Renee Fox and I, who's the other curator, divided up the 
we actually did this work with students, so we had a really great time. We divided up the comics in terms of different eras of comic book production. And they, these are not, we didn't make these up. These are standard in the industry, golden age, silver age, bronze age, and modern age, right? This is familiar to you, Wayne. A little bit. Yeah. I think I've heard yeah. these terms. So, <laughs> okay. And so, so the thing about Marie Severin is that she encompasses all four of those. She's her career stretches over all four of those periods. And one of the most interesting things that she did was we happened to have in the exhibit an original sketch that she did undated, unsigned, but it's definitely her of the Hulk. And I think at the time, the Hulk really kind of looked like Wayne, you can correct me on this, but he kind of looked a lot like Frankenstein's monster in terms of his kind of flat head and very fierce mm. look. But Marie Severin drew him with a sort of a thoughtful, almost childish face. And then that became the face of the Hulk, you know? So that mm. was this, that became the dominant way that we depict the Hulk. The all artists since then have depicted the Hulk, maybe not all artists, but you know, so which this leads me to want to ask just because of my unfamiliarity with the, with monster genre, as compared to the comic book genre, we talk about having these really defined eras, but in cinema history, we also talk about having really defined eras of the horror genre and of monsters. And so I'm wondering how much those two ideas of monster eras and comic book eras overlap in terms of seeing the types of monsters that are actually being depicted or presented compared to, you know, the sort of classic universal horror tropes. And then the ways that you talked a bit about specifically monsters within World War II being racialized, right? But how much yeah. we can see that throughout comics history of these other types of monsters and the ways that they might relate to cinema history or other pop culture notions of monstrosity during the area, during the oh, yeah. eras. Absolutely. Just as a, just as an example, the way that vampires get depicted in the late eighties and early nineties starts to change dramatically, right? They're not just ugly scary, feral, bestial type creatures anymore, but they become seductive and very interesting in that way. And I think that corresponds to a, a trend in, in monster making, in particularly in vampire making that was happening in a lot of different media at the time. I think of Anne Rice really as being one of the progenitors, one of the yeah. pioneers of this kind of vampire. But that starts to show up a lot in, in comic books about the same time. And I think that presages the Twilight and Interview with a Vampire movie and TV show and all these other wonderful artifacts that we have of vampires being sexy. But then there was also a tremendous amount of interest in the LGBTQIA plus experience, particularly when the AIDS crisis was happening. So that starts to, that filters its way into these comic books and the kind of monsters that are generated from them. And then nowadays, like the most recently, the work of people like Peach Momoko, um, and the names are skipping my mind just at the moment, but really scary ass monsters from the far dimensions with nothing but eyes and bulbous mouths and really scary, cool stuff. There's a wonderful series called Helheim. Wayne, do you know Helheim? I'm aware of it. Yeah. It's not one yeah. that I've read, but I am aware of Joel Jones is the artist yeah. and boy, is it cool. And it is just chock full of monsters. Yeah. So. Every kind of monster you can imagine. Yeah, she did a Weird West title as well that I'm blanking on the title of. It's called Pretty Deadly. Yep, 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 that's and, it. And this leads me to kind Thank of you. another leading the witness question, because I These think this is maybe something you can think of as well as how, how much of <laughs> <laughs> my leading the witness questions aren't, aren't leading, they're getting them lost. Yeah, yeah. But, but how much can we see then these depictions of shifts in monstrosity also having to do with our understandings of gender or our understandings of feminine? Uh, because I assume that there is also shifts as we see shifts in women's roles during these eras also being portrayed within depictions of monstrosity and, and womanhood within these comics as well. I mean, I think initially and, and certainly in this beautiful exhibit that was at the Festival of Monsters, you're not really seeing any disruption of the status quo around femininity at all. And I think this is something that happens with the sort of intersection of monstrosity and 
femininity or with monstrous women. Usually it's a sort of play on the fears that patriarchal cultural culture generates around femininity. And so, I mean, they're fantastic to look at, but for instance, in the exhibit, there was a sort of, uh, there were the actual comics themselves, and then they'd kind of printed out these really beautiful outs that they were kind of hanging up uh, near the ceiling of like sirens. And yeah, I mean, they're very normatively beautiful. They're sexy. They're busty. They just happen to have pointy ears and scales. And oh, that's horrifying. You know, I mean, terror (laughs) there is in the fact that these women can lure men against their will to their deaths. Right. I mean, and, and again, this is just a sort of like Barbara Creed does a great job of unpicking all of the traits of the monstrous feminine and how it just reflects sort of patriarchal anxieties around women's sexuality, around any kind of feminine manifestation of power and around female embodiment. And so you see a lot of that. It's not really very disruptive at all, even though now, I mean, I think it's kind of fun. I personally, like Michael, if y'all are closing down that exhibit and you don't have anything to do with that big siren cutout, like, please email me. (laughs) I will drive down to Santa Cruz and get it. But from a feminist perspective, I don't, I don't, I can't look at that and think, okay, yeah, like the monstrous is really like slipping past the borders of normalcy here. It's not subversive in that way. I think, you know, it starts to change like as the years go on. Henry Kamerling gave a really great paper again at the Festival of Monsters about 1970s Marvel comics, the specifically Marvel horror comics. And he looked at like Satana. And here again, you have these female characters who are monstrous in their origins or in their superhuman abilities, but they still look like total babes. They're in yeah. like basically, you know, body suits with deep V cuts. They've got long, luscious hair. They're absolutely nice. gorgeous. And again, a lot of how they sort of get their victims to show any vulnerability is by first sort of flaunting their feminine wiles. And then, of course, they just yeah. kick total ass. What was really interesting about Henry's paper is that he looked at a couple issues that I think are absolutely explicitly feminist. I mean, Satana was going after like abusers, basically. And and in the dialogue, talking about how, you know, patriarchy is the problem. I mean, I'm kind of minimizing things here. But all of this is happening whilst the main character is adhering to normative ideals for female beauty, according to patriarchal standards, right? And so he did a great job of sort of teasing out the paradox that comes when you're dealing with monstrous women, and particularly monstrous women in mainstream media like superhero comics. So I think when you get you know farther along, and, and certainly more recently, so we, we just brought up Pretty Deadly, which is written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, you know, that is a different kind of monstrosity where I think you're finally starting to see something very different in terms of the combination of femininity and monstrosity. The monstrous women in that comic are literally horrific. They're dripping with blood. They're half skeleton. They're, you know, very much undead. They've run around like slaughtering, you know, bad guys we're led to believe and in a way that I think can be beautiful because the art is beautiful. But I think you're finally seeing a kind of representation that does not rely on normative standards of beauty in order to pass some kind of subversiveness. Like these female characters don't have to be beautiful in order to act monstrous. They are just monsters. And that's pretty freaking exciting as far as I'm concerned. Like I said, I, I have a big, dark, warm spot in my heart for all the babes, but I also find this sort of broader exploration of monstrosity in representations of women really exciting because I think it's important for us to get to a point where we can actually see women as fully human insofar as Mm. not all of them are good. (laughs) Um, And I don't think we're going to get there unless we actually embrace like real female monsters. And I think we're starting to see that more frequently um, in contemporary comics. 
Why do you think that happened? So uh, there's a critic, film critic, Nikki Smellick. She says she talks about the male gaze and she talks, she's talking about action movies, not monster movies, but the same she was going to hold. She's referring to your Megan Foxes, your Angelina Jolie's of the world, women who are allowed to play in the action hero space so long as they look like bikini models while doing it. And her argument is the because of male gaze issues she's sort of trying to glom on to laura malvey but modify it she's saying women can be allowed masculine agency so long as they constantly remind us of their femininity so they have to be hyper feminine in order to play in the hyper masculine world otherwise we forget she's a girl and we start thinking of her as a boy and heaven forbid right it, mm-hmm. it's, it plays into this weird gender binary, but you're essentially arguing that is changing right now that I mean, I'm sure at least from my experience, and I don't, I don't look as much stuff as monster stuff as you guys, but I do do a lot of action stuff. There are exceptions, but there are exceptions to the rule. Certainly the majority of action heroines look like bikini models still. Mm-hmm. And in my head. You know, there was the moment when She-Hawk was a bulky Hulk-like character, but she's mm-hmm. back to being a babe again. Satana is a babe. Vampirella is a babe. And so yeah. why do you think that's allowed to change? So, I mean, yeah, I, I think you've, you've made a good point here. And I will just reiterate that like, I am talking in, in broad terms here. And, mm-hmm. and I agree with the critic that you've just cited to an extent. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think this is one of the things that I love about monster studies is, and I'm sure some people find this really frustrating, but like all of my favorite monster scholars are like, shit's complicated. <laughs> you know, like that's basically <laughs> the only conclusion <laughs> that you'll see a good monster scholar come to is be like, it's messy. <laughs> and that's I true. Love- um, we think that is true to an extent. It also makes me think of Richard Gray, who writes, again, primarily about female action heroes or female superheroes. And he talks, too, about this whole idea of, like, this ass-kicking babe who still looks great if she's in a, a cat suit or whatever. But you only ever get to see her be so ass-kicking. Because if she gets to a point where she becomes too dangerous, too threatening... And she starts to become a turnoff, right? It violates that the idea of the male gaze insofar as the male gaze operates to fix female subjects as objects to consume. And so if she's too ass kicking, then she's scary. And that's not sexy, apparently. Fools. So what's the critic's name who says this? Just Richard Gray. It's I think he's okay. the third, actually. He's a comic scholar or has okay. written comic scholarship. I don't know what his primary area of expertise is. But you know, and I do think that this is true. I think it's, you know, it's true when you think about Megan Fox or Angelina Jolie. I think even Charlize Theron occasionally falls into that category. Why do I think that this is starting to change? And I do think it is starting to change some. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I think that that's maybe true for a lot of reasons, one of which is that there are more women creators that have elbowed their way in and have started to <laughs> mm-hmm. tell their own monstrous stories. And it turns out that the women who want to tell these stories are fucking twisted and it's great. <laughs> um, you know, and I think one of the keynotes at the Festival of Monsters was Mallory O'Meara, who is so amazing. And she started her career in horror cinema, like working in production horror films. And she talks about a lot of these things as well. And she has this similarly dark imagination and talks a lot about the kinds of things that she loves and wants to see. And I think that's one of the things that has shifted is that the more women creators that have slowly started to make their way in to media production, the more varied the representations have become because women don't necessarily imagine their stories in the same terms. It's not to say that they're always subversive. I think this is an important point, and it's one that Michael was talking about in terms of early comics. We're still all entrenched in patriarchal culture, so we still take that in. We maybe try to unlearn it, but nobody is doing any of this in a vacuum. So 
you know, I think that's part of it. I, I think part of it too is that we have seen a shift, you know, more popular critique thanks to the internet for good and bad reasons. But I think that's been really important. I think that formerly known as Twitter was a really important site for people <laughs> who could interact with creators, who could make vocal their desires and demands and their displeasure at the sort of status quo. I, I think all of that has actually made a difference. We've seen several things that, you know, fan campaigns that have actually brought shows back or, you know, that have like gotten a sequel off the ground. I mean, I think these things also matter. And I think you can definitely trace a discernible displeasure with that sort of like standard action babe who lacks any other kind of complexity being voiced over the last several years. And I think that's made its way into monster movies as well. I'll stop for now. <laughs> <laughs> Did that go where, where you wanted it to, Monica? Oh, yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there is something to it. Like I, Sam, you said, you know, more women are creating and they're fucking twisted. And I think that that is true. I also think that it's always very confusing to try and sort of break the, what is the gaze and what is not the gaze in the male gaze, I should say, because it's the one, you know, there are many gazes, but that's the one we're usually referring to. And this comes up a lot when I'm teaching this stuff. I teach a lot of visual imagery classes, visual imagery and narrative. And I will undoubtedly always have, you know, a girl, a young, woman a you know 19 year old who will do the but i like seeing hot women kick ass and that is a fair criticism i mean monica we did a whole show i don't know like two months ago on sucker punch right which is literally that is right? the conclusion that i'm gay yeah but like <laughs> so i don't know how much of like we want to get into like a male female gaze in that fair. in that perspective right but, but the yes <laughs> And I see the point. I see the point you're making, but my but counterpoint. It's okay to be gay. I mean, I, yes, I realize you're making a reductive joke, and it's not like like did Sucker Punch really make you gay? Probably not by itself. But the you know if it's okay, I am very much of the opinion, the controversial though it may be, that the male gaze is not inherently bad. It just inherently is, which is to say that there are bad versions and there are good versions, and. You know, there's going to be there's there's this constant move in comics to, you know, we need to diversify, which is good. And we need to subvert and counter the male gaze. And this is what the less enlightened than us will call, you know, the wokeism that is invading comics and they're idiots. And I understand that. But comics is also a business and it's OK to sell stories to straight 14 year old white males who want, you know, who want to have hero worship stories. It's also okay to sell stories to straight 14 year old white females or black females or Asian females or gay ones or trans ones or non-binary ones. Like the entire point is to have variety. So I don't want to feel like we're necessarily poo-pooing the idea of Satana, who is a actually kind of a cool character. My favorite comic character I've said many times is Ilyana Rasputin, who's absolutely conceptually a monstrous woman dressed up in the, mm -hmm. you know, in the babe archetype. That's what that mm -hmm. character is. And it's used to disguise lots and lots of trauma. And when written, I'm going to say correctly, at least correctly in the way in which I want her to be written, that is part of the character that she is dressing her trauma up in. I can deal with this because I'm an Uber babe. Right. So I get that. But I also think Sam's got something when you're talking about there is it's good that there are options beyond the sexy woman now. Right. Like, I don't think that we need to get rid of Satana so much as it's just kind of neat if you can do something else. Yeah, I mean, this is, and I think this is a point that I've made in previous visits. My problem when it comes to something like the male gaze or, I mean, I also, again, I love watching sexy women kick ass. I mean, I just wrote an entire book about female superheroes, even though I keep running into people who are like, oh, but superheroes are inherently fascist and violent and they're vigilantes. And how could you be a feminist? And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Uh, I think that there's, there's lots of violent like, feminism, damn it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. There's a few things, but my original point I think here is that it's a, it is a problem of 
equity, right? This is the fact that the male gaze is disproportionately dominant. It is that yes. represented mm-hmm. more than any other kind of gaze. And it is presumed to be neutral or universal or natural. Right. Therein right. lies the problem. I totally agree with you that it's perfectly fine to have all of these kinds of elements. I also just want to quickly underscore, and I have nothing complicated to say about this other than like, we should get pleasure from these things. It is good for us to mm-hmm. have fun. And if you like something, that's great. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That's that, you know, for me personally, I love a lot of things that don't necessarily meet my standards as a feminist. I can think to myself that, you know, this is disappointing along feminist lines for these reasons. It doesn't mean that I don't enjoy it and that it doesn't make meaning for me in some way. And that's the way it is, right? Again, if we're all living in this sort of patriarchal culture, this is the kind of contradiction that we're going to live day in and day out. I also totally agree with you. I think, you know, this is the really lazy sort of popular misconception about any kind of critique of norms is that we're trying to cancel all that shit. And it's like, okay, you know, that's a really easy way to shut the conversation down. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to say that, you know, we have to eradicate particular types of fantasies. What I want to see is that those stop being disproportionately privileged over and Mm -hmm. above or at the expense of every other type of fantasy Mm -hmm. that's possible. I actually want to bring in maybe when we talk about male, female, male gaze, female gaze, what about a horror gaze, right? Especially if we're going to talk about something and not to get too academic because we're the pseudo academic podcast. (laughs) But if we're going to talk about something like surveillance studies as a field, right? And and we're thinking about the the idea of um, surveillance and surveillance on who has the power and who's doing the viewing. And if we're thinking about horror gaze or the frame of horror as being the reason that you can have a jump scare is because there is something that is out of you, right? And so, Sam, I think a bit of what I'm getting at is some version of, I agree with you because I think that this is about power dynamics and in terms of representation equity, but potentially that we could be using this idea of a horror gaze or a who instead of a male gaze as perhaps a more applicable understanding of why it is possible for there to be multiple power dynamics at play or different frames of visibility outside of Laura Mulvey have analysis as to the function of a babe or a monster, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I would love to hear Michael talk a little bit about this as well. But and I will just say that I think, again, any, well, no, that's harsh. I love to see scholarship and or popular writing that does exactly what you've just suggested that can entertain the possibility of multiple power dynamics operating of the possibility of multiple readings. And yes, like the horror gaze, I mean, that's a really fascinating concept. I've read a lot of studies that that kind of speak to this idea why According to lots of information, women tend to be the biggest demographic and like most active consumers of horror. There's lots Mm -hmm. of kind of conclusions that can be drawn, but one of which is exactly what you're talking about is this ability to experience what kind of becomes a cathartic event, but they still maintain control, right? Like they can experience the horror or the scare, the titillation of danger, but never lose the power over their bodily integrity in a way that of course in the real world lots of women can't maintain that control. So I totally agree with you. And I think that's one of the really sexy things about, again, monster studies for me in particular, but horror studies. But Michael, I wonder what you think about that idea of like a kind of horror gaze or like the power dynamics involved in this kind of stuff. I think that's fascinating. I haven't really... Uh, considered the notion of a horror gaze before until Monica just brought it up five minutes ago. But I, so I'd love to learn more about where that's coming from, but I think Sam, you've put it succinctly. The problem is not that there is culture that caters 
to white men and white heterosexual cisgendered men. The problem is that is the default, right? It's the background against which everything else is painted. That's a problem. That's a huge problem in terms of if we're trying to, if we actually value diversity in our approaches to art and our understandings of both the hermeneutics and the heuristics of art and culture, right? Then that's a problem. But but I'd love to hear more about the horror gaze and where that's coming from. Can I hear a little bit more about that before I chime in on it? I would caveat it with your, your point about the defaultness with the problem with the defaultness of gaze is, yes, we cannot magically undo, you know, hundreds of years of culture that have led us to a moment where one specific gender, race, ethnicity, religion is in control of everything. Right. Like, I understand that it's not magic. Problem is the default allows you to believe that not only is it the most basic but it's the natural one free of politics. So this is where Uh you end up with the questions of, oh, why are you bringing wokeness into my comic books or into my horror movies or into my, you know, my whatever, right? Noreen, I was reading a post on the internet recently about somebody, somebody complaining that, you know, the reason for the failure of all this recent Batman media is because they're trying to make Batman too woke. And he was never about that. And I'm sitting here going, I wrote a dissertation. I'm editing a fucking book on Batman. Your, Your belief about what this is, is flawed, but I get the flaw. The reason a person believes that is he's being confronted with things that he can't ignore in a way that he was unaware of the criticism that something, I mean, okay, here, I'll give you an example. However you feel about killing joke, Alan Moore is not trying to be unwoke when he writes a story for you. (laughs) Alan Moore is trying to criticize you that, that culture, even if he's not necessarily doing the best job of it, or even if he is, regardless of how you feel about how well he's doing it, he is absolutely trying to be critical of it of the treatment of women with what happens to Barbara Gordon in the classic story where she's paralyzed, right? He does the same thing in Watchmen. He is not trying to glamorize things. Now, it might not have worked, but that is his intention. And the fact that you don't get that Rorschach is not a good guy, that's on you, right? So the fact that you don't get that the Joker, like it's the people who idolize the relationship of Joker and Harley Quinn going, oh my God, relationship goals. It's like, no, this is toxic and horrible. You know, it's great that you're actually bringing up Batman because I, I think Batman is this really wonderful example of like, it is a superhero comic, but it's kind of a horror comic, right? Like very much a horror yeah. comic. Yeah. I, yeah. And, yeah. And this is what I mean about like, we should be shifting our, our paradigms a bit. Right. So mm-hmm. I've come to realize that when I say horror gaze, this is not like a scholarly term. It's just like a thing that I have decided is a thing. It's a scholarly <laughs> term now, babe. Yeah, that's right. That's what being in a PhD program is. One of us is now it. own it. <laughs> yeah, you're like your ego inflates to a point where like I just get to make up words. Do. No, you do what I am to. thinking of <laughs> very specifically is so I read a really wonderful and again, I'm so sorry for all of the people who are here for the pseudo academic part of the podcast, but I'm going to jump in with the academic part of the podcast. <laughs> I read this really wonderful book uh, recently, which is um, Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness. Um, and it's specifically, it's specifically it. a critique of Foucault's interest in biopower and the panopticon, because mm-hmm. Foucault says very specifically that our the reason that modernity exists is sort of we lose our public displays of violence. You know, like kings are no longer touting um, severed heads of people who disagreed with the king as spectacle around. Now we have self-discipline through the panopticon prison structure. And the Simone Brown, the author of Dark Matters, argues that's really great for white people. But with things like lynching, we still have very much these public displays mm. of violence mm-hmm. that would not mm-hmm. fall under Foucault's definition of modernity. And I think yeah. about the horror genre very specifically as also being these very public displays of violence and what exactly we are potentially getting out of that as a society participating in a horror gaze that is interested in these public displays of violence and what that might be doing for viewers because Sam you brought up that a very large demographic of the horror genre is women it's also people of color 
And so why people of color who feel a constant threat of these, especially within our current understandings of the police state, right, would still be interested in watching these public displays of violence, especially within, there was a film this year, Mav, that I know that you picked as part of our box office game that was about Black people are usually killed first in horror Mm -hmm. movies. Mm -hmm. What if everyone's a Black person? Which one is going to die first? Like the idea of like, why would you want to watch a movie where you know that the person who looks like you will be the first victim? Uh, And so I think that there, uh, I'm obviously making a lot of leaps between our conversations about monstrous women and trying to throw in discussions of race. But I, I think that we should in terms of if we are going to think about that there will always be alternative modes of viewing um, and alternative histories outside of the dominant discourse outside of the male gaze, right? And, and that's why I think implying something like a horror gaze is going to be useful for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ people to find other negotiated readings within horror. Just to footnote that real quick, the movie Monica is referring to is called The Blackening. It will come up again, not today, but on our Things You Missed show at the end of the year. <laughs> awesome. Um, there's a lot of great scholarship that's, that argues very similarly to what you've just articulated, Monica. That I mean, I don't think most of us are wedded only to Laura Mulvey anymore, including Laura Mulvey. And so... Oh, very much not so, yeah. yes. I think that this is a really solid point. But again, I will just quickly say if you have not chosen a topic for your thesis yet you really have to put the horror gaze in your back pocket and think about it again yeah yeah I i couldn't agree more that's i think it's a great idea I do have a dissertation and it's not about anything spooky at all. I'm so sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> okay. You know, the other as you finish, you know, your education is like a side piece folder and that's where you put all your sexy ideas that you can't get to right now. And this should be one of them. I just want to point out that Sam did say you need a side piece folder where you put your sexy ideas. That's yeah. <laughs> that is a thing that she did. That is, <laughs> she said on purpose on this uh, podcast. <laughs> that's great. I'm trying to get a back to pseudo academic. Okay. Mike, your section on no, your section. I'm just being stupid here, but your section on the seventies, when you're talking about the loosening of the code and they allowed back in like the literary monsters, we had tomb of Dracula and that sort of thing. Did you get into Zuvembi's at all? No, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Zuvembi's. Have we ever? Oh, they, really? Zu- Wait, yeah. Have Zu- we never explained that on this show? Uh, yeah. yeah okay, the, so the, I, I know for a fact we've joked about it before. Has it? Have we yeah, never yeah. explained Zuvembi? Wait, does anybody other than Wayne and I know what a Zuvembi oh, is? No idea. Absolutely not. Wow. Oh my God. That's awesome. Okay, go ahead, Wayne. I just looked yeah, it up. It's, I mean, they, yeah, they changed the code so that they were allowed to do werewolves and Dracula and that sort of thing. They were still not allowed to use the word zombie in right. mainstream code approved comic. There was a black and white magazine with Simon Garth, the living zombie or something like that. And but in the comics themselves, and I think this appeared in Avengers first. They did a story set in New Orleans with the villain, the Black Talon, who dresses like a giant chicken. Yeah. Who, who <laughs> There's so many problematic points of the Black Talon yes, from a. Yeah. Yes. Oh my, so many. And he raised the undead that they weren't allowed to call them zombies. They were called Zuvembis. And everybody in the comic just said it like it was a real word that everybody knows. And it, there, it's not like a, there's not there's no moment where people go Zuvembi. What is that? It's more like, oh, my God. Or Zuvimbi's attacking, and everybody's like Zuvimbi's new, and it's just like, and you're, and as you're reading it, you're like, oh, I, I thought the word was zombie. Maybe yeah. I've been saying it wrong all along. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I read that. One, I read that when I was ten or eleven, so my awareness of zombies was pretty thin at the time as well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just well, it's literally just an, it's an exercise in we'll just now there is a prior occurrence of that term. It, it appears in like weird tales as sort of from like 1938 right. or 30 something from it That's is right. like the it is a it's the usage of the term in a another story that's, you know, sort of a it, it's sort of the same way that zombie never occurs in Walking Dead. They're just the walkers, yeah. you know, so so yeah. there is one other story. But in the Marvel Universe for like 10, 15 years, they just start using Zuvimbi as the word in a make fetch happen kind of way. Like they're mm. just going to call it that. And people are and everybody's on board. And it was weird because all the readers sort of got it and everybody sort of understood why it was being done. And it's just like, all right. 
we're going to do this Zuvimbi thing. I guess that's where we are. And it was, and it's this fascinating point in comics history that once the code loosens up enough to say zombie, then everybody stops saying Zuvimbi and they just have zombies. And it's just, we're okay with saying zombie again. And no one acknowledges it, like why it changed in the comics. It's just this weird, it, I mean, it's, it might as well be saying drat instead of damn or whatever, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. or fudge instead of fuck. Like it, right. it is that kind of thing. Or magia instead of mafia yes. because we don't want to die. Yeah, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The organized crime organization at Marvel for years was the Magia. So. Because Mafia seemed like a it was called because we were in New York and we don't want to complain about the Mafia ever. So we're just gonna make up our own. <laughs> Veiled. So yeah, Zuvimbi's was a thing, and I and it still comes up. I guess at this point we're just old Wayne because I think maybe you have to be an old comic scholar to. There's nothing interesting to say about it other than it's just Not, this weird this period of. <laughs> yeah, yep. You, you you say it among comics geeks, and and we a huge proportion of us we, we all know. Like <laughs> this dumb thing. And, and you're completely <laughs> off topic. I just when earlier you're talking about the code changing in the 70s, and I I remembered. Well, they couldn't do everything thing yet so that's great pub quiz trivia like you've just yeah. given every listener a gold <laughs> ticket and like being that one person who gets their team the winning point because no one else <laughs> knows that history spelled with a u if you need to use it yep. z-u-v-e-m-b-i-e zuvimbi that's why you listen to podcasts like this what did you learn in school <laughs> for pub trivia exactly i'm oh, definitely going to use that in my classes we're going to talk about yeah. If you want to, if you want to point out another thing, another weird era, weird uh, vestige of code era, during the period where you weren't allowed to have or have any supernatural characters, or even or even refer to them, there is a point where you know a young upstart creator by the name of Marv Wolfman, actual name, <laughs> enters comics. Yes, that is his birth name, Wolfman. Wolfman, and the code <laughs> removed his name from the cover. Yeah. They would not let That's him. Right. They would not. Let, they wouldn't let them credit him, and they had to. Okay, who, it, he was at DC at the time, right? Yeah. Probably yeah, would have been. Oh, I don't know who the other. It probably would have been Julie Schwartz who was probably in charge of. Because there was a point yeah, where right. they're like literally petitioning the code. They're like, "No, you have to give us special consideration. We're not talking about werewolves. That's just my guy's name." Yeah, Keenan <laughs> Wayne. Keenan Wayne, co-creator of Swamp Thing. At the same time, they were friends and started at the same time on a lot of the. DC anthology titles because so, they would do like you know House of Mystery, House of Secrets. They would do these short stories that were kind of horror genre, except they they couldn't go too far with that. And that was a training ground for a lot of new young writers and artists. You get an assignment to write a six page story for one of these these anthology series. And a lot of the guys who went on to become big name you know, writers and artists, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman among them, got their start there. So yeah, I'm absolutely sure that would have been DC at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because his earliest work is I mean his earliest big name work is like Teen Titans. So yeah, which yeah. not horror at all. You know, it's yeah. just that was just his name. Yeah. <laughs> well, he he did yeah, Tomb the, of Dracula at Tomb Mar- of Dracula. Mar- 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 Wolfman was writing Tomb of Dracula. He, he's the creator of Blade. Yeah, yeah. A, as a best fifth rate character in, in Tomb of Dracula at, at the time. Yeah, yeah, at absolute best. Mm-hmm. He's a Blade of the seventies bears no resemblance to and what what you're no. imagining when you close your eyes, unless you're, you're old <laughs> and reading old comics like we were. Yeah, whatever you're imagining when you close your eyes and think of Blade is way cooler than the original character. Was. Yeah, well, the original was kind of Shaft with a stick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was a shaft. shaft with a stick. Yeah. Shaft with a stick would would be a so stake. much cooler. Shaft than, with a stake, but yeah, I mean, but even he was a. I mean, he was a disco black guy vampire hunter, but like. Mm-hmm. It was a very poor understanding of what Shaft was even. So yeah. oh, like, yes. it, yeah. like it is it, to call him Shaft with a stake is so in, insulting to the now memory of yeah. Richard Rushry that yeah. I don't want to aspire to be Shaft with a stake. Yeah, well, and I think that imagery is part of the inspiration for the character, but like yes. without any understanding of it whatsoever. Yeah, it was so it's just he's a weird so this is a different show so we're getting towards resolving nothing but if you're if you do any kind of music studies and you're into the era of disco a lot of people believe that disco they're the, the, the picture in your mind of what disco was 
is is you know staying alive saturday night fever era yeah actual disco was nothing like that and um what was like that is the character blade (laughs) 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 from and just as a piece of personal trivia marv wolfman was one of the first handful of commies professionals i ever met at the first convention i ever went to at duquesne university math i was pitted against him head to head in a game show called the fandom feud where the fans answered comics trivia against the professionals i went head to head with marv wolfman in in comics <laughs> trivia did you I win him. yeah you did yeah did. you did <laughs> that's right can i quickly offer a little footnote before we move off of like technical comics discussions this is a little bit of like looping all the way back around but i just wanted to say that i misspoke uh, the western horror comic called Pretty Deadly that's written by Kelly Sudaconic is actually illustrated by Emma Rios. Ah, okay. I knew that. So Joelle, yeah, sorry about that. Joelle no. Jones has done some horror, but she's most famous for doing Lady Killer. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thank, thanks for that correction. I just, I didn't look it up when I said that and I was just trying to remember what I knew her from. <laughs> I should have known that because we had some Emma Rios in the exhibit and we didn't do Pretty Deadly, but we did look at some of Pretty Deadly's when we were collecting material for the exhibit, but we didn't actually use that. that Well, when I passed the ones that you had of Emma Rios's work, I I mean, I passed it first and I was like, oh, it's pretty deadly. And then had to come back and I was like, no, it's not. But I mean, her style is very distinctive. And so that was really cool to see. Okay. So I'm not completely off base by, by seeing the similarities then. No. What's next? We resolve nothing. <laughs> yeah, we resolve nothing. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no real wrap up on that. I mean, it was a great conversation. I, I think there's so much more here that we can talk about I mean, and analyze and look at. I, you, I mean, you, Mike, you know from just what you're doing that this is just a very rich topic. It's weird. We've done so many monster shows just because. But also, I, I think that monster studies, I mean, would you guys, I, I, I would probably argue that it is still an emerging field, which actually sort of makes it exciting. Not that, I mean, there's been monsters forever in literature, right? But the academic but the specific field is alive. specializing on it. The field is alive. I would actually, I'd push back Very on that a well little done. bit. Yeah, I'd, I'd push back on that a little bit. The monster studies was sort of invented by Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, or it was established by Jeffrey Jerome, or defined maybe mm-hmm. in in 1996 is when that first essay, mm-hmm. Monster Culture Seven Theses, came out. And I think now it's quite vibrant, and it's not so much a I don't know if it's a field of its own as so much as a subfield of many other disciplines. Uh, including, I mean, you call 20, 28 years not emerging anymore. That's amazing because yeah. people call <laughs> comic studies emerging all the time and it's been around for 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it is emerging then if it's only 28 years, but, but I, I feel I like it's exciting is what I'm getting. I, yeah. it is, it's, it's very exciting. When we put out our call for papers for the festival of monsters, we got responses mm-hmm. from scholars all over the United States, but also Germany, India, Turkey, and Brazil. So this is a, it's a field where people are really hungry to be able to produce something. You know, and it is our goal eventually at the Center for Monster Studies to create a journal of monster studies Mm -hmm. that people can publish in. And then maybe then once and for all, it will be a field. That's our goal for the the near future or for the distant future, really. Yeah. I know somebody who has a very interesting concept that they want to talk about with called the horror gaze. So you should talk to them. (laughs) I heard all about this. I heard all about the horror gaze. I'm really a huge fan, a huge devotee of the horror gaze. I'm scared to look at it. <laughs> that, yes. uh, Sam, Michael, thank you for joining us again. Jimmers, uh, where can people find you? I mean, you just said a little bit, but just give them the plug and how they can get in touch with you and hear about our about your exhibit and such. Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. The website to go to is monsterstudies, one word, dot ucsc.edu, monsterstudies.ucsc.edu. And that's got all of the crazy things that we're up to, including our podcast, the show where they talk about monsters and all the other things that the Festival of Monsters is up to do. And as Sam said, we'll soon be putting on the recordings of the panels from the festival so anybody can see them, even if they didn't get to go to the festival, which I think is very cool. 
cool and yeah, democratic. That's very, yeah, that's great. Yeah, because uh, there were wonderful panels. I mean, Sam was right. They, Henry Kammerling's paper was amazing, just as one example. But uh, what else? I wrote a book called The Monster in Theater History, which is comes out from Rutledge, came out from Rutledge a few years ago. I have another book called... Oh, I forgot the name of it. So come back to me on this one. <laughs> what the hell is the name no, of that book? Ghostlight. It's oh. real good. <laughs> it's a real good book. Very it's proud called, of it. Oh, it's called Monsters and Performance Essays on the Aesthetics of Disqualification. Monsters and Performance Essays on the yeah. Aesthetics of Disqualification. Yeah. And that's uh, edited by myself and Anna Lola Santana. <laughs> That's all. Sam, what about you? <laughs> um, so I guess I'll just start where we ended book wise. I co edited a book called Monstrous Women in Comics. So I co edited that with Elizabeth Ray Cooty, and it's from the University Press of Mississippi. It came out in 2020. And I am currently in the process of finishing up my copy edits on my first monograph, which will be published with the University of Texas Press in. The fall of 2024, it's called Searching for Feminist Superheroes, Gender, Sexuality, and Race in Marvel Comics. Sam, that's that I want exciting. to mention. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. And it's a real thing. There are feminist superheroes. So like, yeah. don't at me on that. <laughs> yeah. So the other things I just want to point people towards, if you want to get in touch with me, I have a website, samlingsdale.com. I'm on Blue Sky at Sam Langsdale, the Blue Sky end bits. I don't know that yet. But, just get rid of it. Just if the, if the Blue Sky people are listening here, the fact that you're like supposed to be at Chris Maverick dot blue sky dot app, yeah. stop it or that's not, not no one's gonna do that. just use the handle i understand what you're doing i understand like i totally understand the technical reasons why that is you know you're trying to decentralize it you know the same way that mastodon does it it's a bad idea just stop no one likes it words the only other things that I want to quickly mention, I for the people who are interested in comics and comic studies, I'd like to extend opportunities. So if you go to comicstudies.org, on the homepage, you'll see that we have a call for papers currently open for our annual conference. And I'm the kind of lead organizer as the first vice president this year. And the theme is glitching comics. We're really excited mm-hmm. about this. Um, and I think it, it kind of matches up with everything we've been talking about, about sort of messiness and monstrosity and and shifting our paradigms. So please have a look at that. And I'm also on the board of the Digital Cultural Studies Cooperative. That website is dcsco-op.org. And we are going to be hosting a, a virtual conference in the spring called Into the Archieverse. So if you love anything about Archie comics, whether that's the original or you love any of the TV series, Riverdale or Sabrina. Yeah, the TV series. Yes. We want uh, you down, to come down, play down, with Mav. us. I'm, I am very How aware of the Archieverse. The, How would you yes, feel about a Josie and the Pussycat film? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely bring it on. In fact, we are hoping that we would get somebody who can talk a little bit about fashion in addition to other things. So, you know, if you know anybody, let us know. Is anybody interested in these sorts mm-hmm. of things? Also, just out of curiosity, Sam, where is the Comic Studies Society conference going to be? It's also virtual. So I I can do it no matter where I live. That's precisely the point. Yeah, I kind of pushed for that this year because last year was a great success, but it was incredibly expensive and very labor intensive. And so I just thought, well, why do we have to do this to ourselves every year? It's still a sort of small society. And I don't know that actually works for everybody. It certainly doesn't for me as an independent Mm -hmm. scholar. I can't afford to go to all Mm -hmm. of these conferences. So I've kind of floated the idea and it has been very well received. Actually, people are really relieved that every few years they're going to get a break. They can still participate, but they don't have to shell out hundreds and hundreds of dollars. 
go to some place so you, like Denton's Texas. Yeah. Sure <laughs> yeah. As, as, as an affiliated non-independent scholar, I must also say that I can't afford to go to all these conferences <laughs> that I go to. It's a little, you know, back for when I used to be the, you know, the actual imposter, when I used to like do this in my free time as I had an outside job, I had a job where, which afforded me enough money that if I burned my vacation time to go to conferences, like I, you know, I was actually able to do that. Now that it's part of my actual career, it's way too expensive to do. Very, very much a problem. So funny, funny so, how that works. Yeah. So yeah. I am. So I, for one, am happy that exists, and I, I will be probably, perhaps, maybe like submitting something to one or more of these. You absolutely, <laughs> must you have until January for at least glitching comics. I can't remember what we decided on Archie, but you've got some time. Oh, you have till February. So you have no February time. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the Archie first. <laughs> I think I'm aware of that. Yes. So you have no excuses, man. Monica Marvelous, what about you? I have disappeared now that I'm in a PhD program. <laughs> Almost entirely. But if you really wanted to hassle me, I still have that thing formerly called Twitter. And I did set up a letterbox. You can find me at it's Monica Marvelous uh, on Twitter. That is L-O-U-X. It's trademarked now. It's <laughs> It was that way before it was X. I don't know how to change it. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> and... Wayne Wise. Yeah, it's here. You can find me here sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same thing. Yeah, since I am not really working in the field, I don't have any of that stuff to talk about. There's, there's no new hoots now. Yeah, I hype that, I hype mm. that up all the time, but, but no. But uh, hopefully at some point in the future, there will be more stuff. <laughs> Geez, where can you find me? You can find me. I guess, well, you know, relevantly, because we're promoting comic stuff, I guess I should point out that I am editing a collection called Batman Also Starring that is a collection of essays that are not about Batman. They're about people in Batman's orbit. The less famous, the better. <laughs> They're about supporting characters that wouldn't necessarily get a book of their own. So I'm not looking for Harley Quinn. I'm not looking for Nightwing. I'm looking for stories about the other folks. Just kind of people vaguely connected to the Batman and Gotham City. And they can be yeah, they're academic essays. They can be, you know, literary. They can be theatrical, you know, looking at the games, any of the Batman world, but not about Batman. And that call for comments ends on December 1st. So not quite a month <laughs> you got left. But, you know, I'm starting to get some. I, I, I got an essay abstract from. This young upstart scholar named Wayne Wise yesterday. So I'm, I'm looking at that. <laughs> Considering. <laughs> no, it's, it's been fun watching those come in. So those, those Considering. Are, gonna, yes. Considering. We'll see. And, and, and that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, although, although the, I, I think in terms of obscure characters. I'm, obscure. I, I nailed the obscure. So. <laughs> You always do. Yeah. yeah. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Blue Sky or Threads or Mastodon. <laughs> I, I forget. Mastodon, let's be, I'm going to be honest with you. I never post a Mastodon because I, I forget it exists until I'm doing this outro. And then I think I should post the you know, announcement of the new episode there. And then I don't because I don't think mm -hmm. I don't think Mastodon's going to happen. So, but I'm on all the social media at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show right now on Twitter, Facebook and Blue Sky at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where when we remember, we write calls or comments and talk about what we're going to talk about next week. And I have no idea what that is. We should figure that out. <laughs> and we should. And you can leave us comments on this episode or any other episode. You can suggest topics about what you'd like to hear us talk about. Sometimes we pick guests basically from the comments and you can even possibly be on the show. If you enjoy the show. Oh, yes. Terribly. <laughs> how, how <laughs> if you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or or Spotify or Pandora or Google Play or wherever the hell you get podcasts from. I don't know. And do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, and really helps us out. Especially if you don't just, like, leave a rating, but if you write a review and you just say a little something about how, yeah, that's a... 
That's an awesome show you guys got there. Learn some stuff about monsters. I learned what Zuvimbis were. <laughs> and my life is better for it. Out there, I've just written the review for you. Please, someone write a review for us that just talks about how great it is that you learned what Zuvimbis were from us. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank Sam and Mike for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Bye. Bye.